As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show. My name is Ryan Bailey and joining me to review the first tranche of Champions League round of 16 matches is a man who would never play a pass back straight into the path of an opposing striker. It's Taylor Bentancur. I mean, Taylor Rockwell. (laughs) I would try not to at least. Yeah, that was not the greatest of starts. Yours was a much better start, including words like tranche in there, you fancy, fancy man you. I like tranche. It makes me feel like I'm moving money around between sort of big European banks and I feel all fancy. I watched the scene where they try to explain tranches like six times in the big short. Still no idea. Still no idea how those things work. <laughs> you but need Margot Robbie in a bathtub. You don't need me talking to you. That's what you need to explain things, Tay <laughs> That might have been part of why I was distracted. <laughs> Joining Taylor and I is a man who would never walk straight into an important game after not playing for a very long time and completely mess it up. It's Joe PK. I mean, Joe Lowry. <laughs> Joe, how are you? <laughs> I am quite well, Ryan. I, I would certainly try not to do that. Like Taylor said, he's going to try not to pass the ball directly into the path of a Porto striker. But you know what? Uh, I'm not perfect. So See what I've done there, gents? If I've very subtly teased some of the action we're going to be talking about oh, in this you. episode. Uh, we're going to be doing a Champions League review, as I mentioned, off the top. Uh, for starters, gents, how did we enjoy the action overall? Joe, Was it, was it were they fun games for you? Did you have a good time trying to flick between and agonize over which action to watch? <laughs> I didn't have too too much of a difficult time trying to decide between the games because they happen simultaneously. But uh, Fubo lets you record things and, and lets you watch it back later. And so I didn't have to have that internal debate over which game I was going to watch first because I knew I was going to get to watch both of them on both days. But man, the games themselves, I, I really want to hear your guys' thoughts on this as well. But I thought, I thought really all four games were fun in their own way. I tweeted earlier today before we, we were recording right now just how much I enjoyed them. I thought there were tactical things that were fascinating. I thought there were great individual performances in these games. We're only halfway through this this uh, round of 16, a quarter of the way through this round of 16, but I'm enjoying myself immensely. Uh, Taylor, are you enjoying yourself immensely also? Yeah, I mean, I really appreciate that Joe began by saying he gets to watch all of these games uh, as opposed to he has to watch all of these games. So that's a positive <laughs> Things can be sign. two things, Taylor. That is sort of... 
Yeah, I suppose. It is the weird thing about doing this show that you can always sort of rest assured you're going to end up watching everything, so it doesn't necessarily matter which one you're going to be watching first. Though if you're trying to be in on the conversations, in on everything that's happening on Twitter, maybe you you want to try to like pick the more entertaining one, but I think all of the games that we're going to be discussing were entertaining for various reasons, unless you happen to be, say, a Barcelona fan, in which case you probably did not find that one as entertaining. Um, Taylor, I'm going to pick you up there. Don't try and pretend that watching soccer for a living is a, is a laborious thing that we do here. We're not, we're not, uh, we're not, you know, we don't work in a sewage pipe. We don't have to pass the ball back to uh, Wojcik Szczesny under a great peril at any point. So uh, I think we can count ourselves lucky. I mean, you don't know where I watch these games. <laughs> I, I might be watching them in a sewer. <laughs> I have, I think for the 20, I forget which World Cup it was. I'm assuming 2014. I was uh, working in a record store and watching all the games on my phone while trying to take notes and being very good at customer service, I'm sure. So I take your point, Ryan. It is easier to watch the games from a chair. When you have, like, six games to watch, though, in about a 12-hour time period, that's where it starts to catch up to me a little bit. Just a little bit. Re- record store? What, what do those two words yeah. mean? <laughs> I think you mean Amazon, Taylor? <laughs> no way, man. CD seller. False church. Buy your, buy your records... And uh, and your CDs there for all those people that are still buying boxes and boxes of compact discs. I um I worked for three years in a Virgin megastore, giving Richard Branson hugs every single day. I loved that job. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> I loved it. Ice cream, uh, selling ice cream for, for was my remains my number one favorite job. That that is the all time greatest. But then records are up there too. Uh, expand selling ice cream. Were you in an ice cream truck? Did you have a little jingle you played in the truck? Tell us about the I truck. Did not. I worked. I worked in a small little uh, ice cream store here in Richmond uh, when I was in high school, and it was terrific. And uh, though I, I think it's also because prior to that, I, jo- I worked a lot of jobs uh, before I turned like 21. Uh, but before that, I was working in The Gap, and no one is ever happy to buy clothing, whereas everyone is happy to buy ice cream. Sometimes uh-huh. people are happy to buy ice cream and then not happy to buy clothing, but they're still happy with the ice cream. So I think that's part of why I enjoyed it so much. It's just rough. T- it's tough to be in a bad mood while simultaneously ordering like a hot fudge sundae. Well, well, I hope the listeners are buying what we're selling today. But, uh, Joe, have you had any interesting jobs uh, before we get into the uh, soccer action? All I can think about, I'm, I'm not going to answer that question. All I can think about is just, like, you know, wanting to, to get out of this recording session and going to either buy ice cream or work at an ice cream shop. Because, yeah, Ryan, I haven't had a ton of interesting jobs outside of the soccer world. But now I'm thinking that ice cream seller or, or maybe just, you know, perennial ice cream buyer might be the right move for me. Perennial ice cream buyer, yeah, that's a, I'm not sure anyone pays you for that, but I, I think that's a good aspiration <laughs> we'll for see. you, Joe. We'll see, we'll see, Ryan. <laughs> oh, speaking about the future, there's all that, you yeah. know, you hear about the, the kids today, all the jobs they'll be doing, they haven't been invented yet, so maybe that's just one of them, that's possible. <laughs> I mean, to, to be fair, I'm pretty sure a six-year-old Taylor wasn't like, I'm going to be a podcaster one day. <laughs> if I had been, my parents would have been very confused. Even though they're still sort of confused by what I do yeah. for a living. Mommy, when I grow up, I'm going to sit in my garage and talk about RB Leipzig with two Americans across the rest <laughs> of the country. That's what I'm going to do. And I, and I like to think that my parents would have been like, but RB Leipzig isn't yet a team. Yeah. And then it would have been a whole Terminator situation and they would have known I was from the future. They were like, no, Ryan, Red Bull is the drink we were drinking in the nightclub <laughs> when, we, uh, when we met before we had you. <laughs> anyway, enough of that. 
Champions League. Why don't we move on to that, Jets? Yeah. Uh, we're doing a Champions League review after all, not a not a, a, an inspection on life. Why don't we start off with the action uh, from RB Budapest, the aforementioned, against Liverpool. This one finished 2-0 to Liverpool. Turns out the perfect antidote to a team having a tough time in their domestic league is to have some Leipzig defensive errors go in your favour. Um I, th- yeah. I thought I was quite impressed with this game. It was a, it was a decent one to watch for sure. I like the fact that um, Leipzig, unlike many of Liv- uh, Liverpool's opponents, actually went for it. I think if you look at who Liverpool actually plays week in, week out, the majority of the opponents don't go for it in the manner that Leipzig did. Uh, Joe, why don't we talk about um, the system they played? Jurgen Klopp said um, it's still not clear which system they'll play just before the game when he saw the team sheet. Uh, he said we can identify the offensive and defensive players, but how they're set up, we will see. And they did set up with... No recognised striker. Was it a 3-3-2-2? Was it a 3-1-4-2? Are they the same thing? Talk to me, Joe. There's a lot of numbers in there, Ryan, and I'm going to try to parse through it for you. I saw Leipzig playing in a 3-4-1-2 shape, but to give Jurgen Klopp some credit, it was very fluid, and I wasn't exactly sure what it was going to look like before kickoff, but I do think it ended up as a 3-4-2, as a 3-4-1-2, excuse me. Again, lots of numbers in there. It was Nkunku (laughs) and Danny Olmo up top as the front two, and they... They did play as a front two, even though neither one of them are strikers normally. They both played next to each other. Danny Olmo would drop in, and then Nkunku would would drive in behind the back line. So that was their setup in the attack. And then in midfield, it was Kevin Kampel and Sabitzer next to each other at times. Other times, Sabitzer would push forward. And then it was Hayadara as that kind of number 10, but another just really Mm -hmm. athletic, not necessarily entirely defensive-minded, but certainly a strong defensive presence in that midfield as well. Did did, did, he, uh, did Leipzig shake out how you expect style-wise and what they did on the field there? I mean, I saw a few, uh, you know, I thought Angelino was pretty good getting in there a few times. I thought Kevin Campbell's ponytail was an utter disgrace. Anything else stand out for you? <laughs> it, was, it was very similar. Maybe I'm patting myself on the back too much here, and I'll, I'll certainly stop doing that later on when we talk about Porto, at least in some ways. But with Leipzig, they did a lot of what I thought they were going to do. They did a lot of what we talked about in our preview show. Nagelsmann wants this team to keep the ball. That's, that's big for them. And they did. They tried to do that. They tried to play underneath or to play out of Liverpool's pressure, which is not easy to do. And they didn't do a very good job of it in this game. But they tried to keep the ball and they tried to press. And when they attacked, they attacked largely through Angelino on the left side, which is, you know, a thing that we talked about and how productive he's been for them this season. So I think Leipzig came in there knowing exactly what they wanted to do. Maybe we didn't know exactly how they were going to do it in terms of formation. But they played pretty much how they've been playing throughout this entire season. Taylor, uh, let's talk about Liverpool for a second. Uh, not too many surprises in terms of the way they lined up. But, uh, I mean, Curtis Jones, uh, he played a whole game. And I think mm-hmm. we've noted that he's been subbed in recent performances. And when he subbed, things have gone downhill, particularly in the Leicester game, when he subbed and things went pear-shaped pretty quickly. Uh, I thought Quebec had a decent game here, stepped up to win the ball quite a bit. Certainly better than that aforementioned Leicester game. I don't. I think, was it me or was Thiago doing a bit more defensive work as well? What did you make of it, Taylor? Um, I, I thought it was it was a really interesting game from the standpoint of Leipzig coming in and sort of, I think there was a, a little bit of tinkering from Nagelsmann. He tried some things. He tried to throw some sort of unexpected things at Liverpool. Liverpool, for their part, I think to the point you made, Ryan, did about what we expected. It's a 4-3-3. It was Henderson at center back, but it was uh, Kabak alongside him. We did not have Fabinho back there. Uh, and... With that in mind, I then was surprised by how effective Liverpool were at sort of shutting down Leipzig. Because what I saw was that Leipzig back three of Klosterman, Opamakano, and Mukiele 
routinely trying to move the ball out of the back, except that they had Liverpool's front three basically sitting on them man-to-man. So there's not much time, there's not much space. That then invites Campbell and Sabitzer or Haidara. It was usually a two. They didn't tend to try to overload there, and I think that was part of the problem for Leipzig. But when those two dropped in, Curtis Jones and Thiago both did a really good job of moving with them. Mm. And I thought it made it really, really difficult for Leipzig to get anything going. And then I thought Leipzig did, did a a mostly very good job of doing the same to Liverpool and frustrating them. So this did end up being that sort of chess match that I expected of of sort of, oh, each team is countering what the other one is trying to do, but neither team is really letting the other one like really get any sort of run of form. And so with that in mind, it's really not surprising to me that it comes down to basically two individual mistakes costing Leipzig this game because it was pretty even up until Mohamed Salah decided to cause problems. Is it as simple as that, Joe? Just two, two defensive errors letting Leipzig down? I mean, uh, you can just look at it as an even matchup, but um, I didn't feel like Liverpool were in any great danger in this game I think I saw I remember one save being forced by Ellison I remember Angelino having a couple of shots uh, they had a late chance to pull one back didn't they but I, I feel like the balance was with Liverpool Joe Leipzig weren't bad I didn't think they were bad at least but they weren't great at some really important things they weren't great at creating chances they weren't great at playing through Liverpool's pressure and to go back to a point you made Taylor you talked about Liverpool's front three pressing Leipzig center backs That was huge for me in this game, or I thought that was huge for Liverpool in this game. It wasn't just Firmino, Salah, and Mane pressing up against Leipzig's center backs. It was them controlling Leipzig's back five. And by back five, I don't mean the back three and the wing backs. I mean the goalkeeper. I mean their three center backs, and I mean Kevin Koppel, who played as their single pivot, as their deepest player in midfield, in buildup, and in possession. So Liverpool controlled five Leipzig players with their front three. I, I almost can't express how difficult that is to do, right? Imagine just going out and playing 5v3. You're in a huge, difficult spot at that, that point. You're in a hugely difficult position. And Liverpool did that so effectively. They pressed with their front three against Leipzig's back five, which then gave their midfield an advantage, which then allowed Kabak and, and Jordan Henderson to be more comfortable at the back. It was a knock-on effect from the front line all the way back, level by level, layer by layer. And it served Liverpool so well in this game how effective their front three were because then it allowed them to dominate a little bit defensively, not let Leipzig do too much in the attack, and then capitalize on those defensive errors from RB Leipzig at the right time. Yeah, and it's another game uh, where, in my mind, we have Salah with the opener, we have Mane getting the second. And I've had friends sort of talk about, like, when Liverpool get an out-and-out striker, that's when they're really going to be this electrifying team. And I think a, a key aspect of what they're able to do here is because Roberto Firmino understands the system so well and knows kind of exactly what to do in any given moment, which is, uh, first of all, just very impressive because who has that presence of mind, but also because the ability to have flexibility in a very rigid pressing system does make the difference because when Leipzig are kind of making sure everything is marked off and everything is handled and we have all the red angles, adding a variable in there and Firmino sometimes just dropping very deep to create another passing option, it does then make Leipzig scramble. And anytime I think you can make them adjust what they're doing or you make somebody have to cheat over a few yards, that opens up something for somebody else. And I think aspects of what Firmino brings in and little intangibles like that, I think make a big difference in this game. Because if you're Mukiele, for example, who is being told, keep this one space, keep your positioning here. Even if Tyler Adams drifts forward, we don't want you drifting further wide. I think he is sort of stuck in a position of not being able to experiment very much, contrasting that with Roberto Firmino, who can pop up anywhere. And I think that freedom did make a big difference for Liverpool on the day. 
Any way back for Leipzig in the second leg, Tate? I mean, two away goals for Liverpool here. Uh, I mean, is this one over? Uh, yeah, I honestly think it is, uh, which is not a thing that we usually would do. I would like to say, like, well, you never know and everything, and, and I was completely wrong. I think I was only right with the way one of these games went, I, I, and it was not this one. I definitely thought Leipzig <laughs> were going to cause Liverpool some problems. And I, and I think I agree with you, Ryan, that though I think Leipzig did some things to cause Liverpool problems, they were the architects of their own destruction with those two mistakes, it didn't feel like Liverpool were all that threatened on the regular. And I do think part of that is Kabak. I do think part of that is the way they set up to limit Leipzig's ability to get numbers into threatening positions. And barring Leipzig really figuring something out and really throwing out something completely different or Liverpool having more injury concerns, yeah, I think they're able to to get a result at home. Maybe they concede a goal, maybe, Mm. but I think they still end up finding a way through in this tie. I think it was really important, this win for Liverpool. They really needed this, and particularly ahead of the Merseyside derby uh, coming up this weekend as well. Albeit it is at Anfield and Everton haven't won there since like 1600s. So um, uh, uh, (laughs) I think that's a... it might be a good week in general for Liverpool. Joe, any more to say about this game before we trot on? Anything about Tyler Adams or any, any, anything else? Tyler Adams? Yeah, sure. I'll talk about Tyler Adams. We've got a nice American theme <laughs> running through these games, which is, which is always fun to see. I thought Adams was kind of a byproduct in his performance and his lack of real impact on the offensive side of things, at least, was kind of, again, a byproduct of how good Liverpool were defensively. Leipzig had the chance to position their wingbacks Angelino on one side and Tyler Adams on the other side. They had the chance to position those players. If you think about the field vertically and you think about Liverpool's 4-3-3 defensive shape, there's that gap, that vertical gap between the left winger and the left back. So between Mane and Andy Robertson. And then on the right side between Salah as the right winger and TAA as the right back. There are those, those spaces in there because the midfield three can't, can't stretch the whole field horizontally. So Leipzig had the chance to position Tyler Adams and Angelino in those little spaces but because they couldn't build up and get out of Liverpool's front three, they couldn't consistently access those spaces. And when they did, you know, maybe outside of a nice through ball that Adams played at the very end of the second half, he really didn't make any big impact. And the same goes for Angelino as well. They, they could combine a little bit more on the left side, and it was more dangerous on that left side. But between Adams just generally being a limited offensive player and between Liverpool's pressure, he didn't have a, a great offensive impact in this one. Yeah, I think I think like Adams is a in my mind a sort of when it comes to the attack a flow state player. So too is Angelino. If they're in, they're sort of like if they're feeling it. They're getting forward. They're creating things. They get forward once and they get a cross in, and then you start to feel a little bit more. Now you try to take somebody on and you get by them. I think as you develop that confidence, you start to feel more creative freedom to try things. I think Angelino certainly has more of that than Tyler Adams by design. But I think neither of them was really able to get that sort of attacking play going. Angelino maybe a little bit more, but again, I think that's an expectation for him, less so for Tyler Adams. And so when they're not having that consistency, when they're not able to find that fluidity, I think it then means they err on the side of caution, at least in Tyler Adams' case. So I don't have like much negative to say about him, but I'll be honest and say I don't have much positive to say about him either. So overall, I guess an okay game, but for Leipzig on the whole, not an okay game. I think not having much negative, but also not much positive is the way I describe most players on the field for RB Leipzig, actually, to be fair. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of, a lot of uh, mediocrity and yeah. meh, I think going on in this game. Meh. Except for Opamakana, who I thought was maybe downright bad, at least <laughs> in that first half. His uh, Sam Ty was the first one to raise that like idea to me that Opamakano 
never looks 100% like he is that next big center back. He is the new Virgil van Dyke. He always has a misplaced pass or a header that doesn't quite make sense or some positioning that's uh, suspect, and I saw a lot of that in this game. So I agree with you, Ryan. Not great across the board, and then I think that definitely extends to Upamakano as well. Well, I, think, I just want to um, say... I just want to say I'm buying all of the Upamecano stock. If Taylor and Sam Ty want to leave any piece of it left uh, you know, in the stock trading floor, I'm going to take every little bit of that, and I think it's going to pay Ooh. off. Buy low, okay. sell high. Buy low, sell high, Joe. I like <laughs> what you're doing there. Um, and Tranche. <laughs> buy tranches of <laughs> right? stock huh? in Upamecano, who um, is obviously just auditioning for Liverpool because he's shown he can give them great service. Boom, boom. Why don't we um, move on to Barcelona at PSG right after these important messages. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We are back. Barcelona 1, Paris Saint-Germain 4. Uh, is this a halfway to another 8-2 or another remontada? Who's to say? Uh, Barcelona probably still wishing they, uh, wishing for the days of getting Arsenal in this round uh, either way. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Barcelona first. Uh, Joe, were you covering this team before, remind me? I was, yes. Sadly? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> well, sadly, is quite a good description. You sound very sad about it. I was, no, like I, I was I'm happy sorry. to do it, but I feel like you know, I feel like I'm almost now in solidarity with Barcelona fans, which then just puts me in a bad place. Well, to be fair, I did, I did sense a, there was a feeling of melancholy watching this. I mean, watching this performance and watching what Barcelona were not that long ago and what they were on the field here, quite different things, aren't they, Joe? Yeah, man, it is. There are so many different ways that this conversation could go, right? And I think I'm going to focus my analysis on the field stuff, but Barcelona are in a completely different place than they were a decade ago. And they're going to be in a different place and probably a worse place a year from now or two years from now. They are in a bad spot. And they were in a bad spot against PSG earlier this week. They didn't play... And it's hard because soccer is complicated. And Barcelona did some things really well, I thought at least. Maybe you guys disagree. I thought Barcelona moved the ball well in possession. I thought they created a few chances very well. I thought they did certain things on the field just fine. But then they did other things that were just so awful. And they could not keep PSG at bay. They could not contain them. The game plan that Ronald Koeman put out there was never going to be enough to contain PSG. I'm not sure he ever could have. I'm not sure even without Neymar that Barcelona could have stopped Mbappe and could have stopped Icardi and could have stopped Verratti and Paredes and all of these players. But man, I don't think Ronald Koeman gave his team a chance to do that at all. I agree entirely with you, Joe, because I think this was a game where early on, like I think the narrative overall was Serginho Dest is bad at soccer, and I have lots of thoughts on that one. We can do that later. But I also saw early on a few little like PSG look almost as though they're coached by a bad coach, and I saw a few different people throwing shade at Pochettino. 
I am. I think I just maybe I will buy all the stock then. If Joe is buying up McConnell, <laughs> I'll buy the Poch stock. But one thing that I think stands out to me about him, especially in the Champions League, going back to when Tottenham went on the run they had, Pochettino is not afraid to make big changes and make them early. He will change things up in the first 10 minutes, the first 15 minutes. He will make substitutions inside 30 minutes if he recognizes something isn't working. And Jody, your point, I think in a couple different moments in this game, he spots opportunities. He spots uh, opportunities to overload, and he pulls people over. He has conversations with them. He makes a halftime sub. I think he made big decisions that put his team in a much more positive situation. And by contrast, I think Ronald Koeman failed to address pretty obvious in my mind at least and I'm not like obviously he's a better coach than I will ever 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 hope to be but in watching this game again and just seeing PSG doing very specific things to I think pin uh, Barcelona back and pin Barcelona back and narrow at the same time to then create space out wide it was just screaming for okay you got to drop in we got to have two more defensive players I think Griezmann did a little bit better of a job than Dembele did but I still don't think that Ronald Koeman really helped his team be in the best possible situation maybe 10 minutes into this game. In the group chat, Tate, you were getting all hot under your cute little collar yep. about Dest. Uh, well, I'll, I'll let you go on that one. I mean, if you look at it from, a, a, you know, fairly objectively, I mean, uh, Kozawa and Mbappe gave him a pretty hard time in this game. Uh, what did you make of it? Well, I think that's the key thing, man, is like, yeah, two players gave him a hard time, and that's precisely what I'm talking about. I shared it on Twitter uh, in response to somebody, but there's a very telling image in my mind of it's right before the first goal, the equalizer for PSG, PSG's first goal, I should say, and Barcelona have made their back four very, very tight. Uh, Jordi Alba has stepped out into the midfield that Antoine Griezmann has filled in, so it looks like Jordi Alba is there. He's not, but it's still a very tight back four. Then you have the numbers in front of them, but you have Kurzawa all the way out on the far touchline, wide open, and Dembele splitting the difference, but completely ball watching. And as soon as that ball goes across, now Serginho Dest has to sprint out 20 yards, but not over pursue, but not like just contain and not let a cross come in. That means Pique has to slide over onto, I believe, Verratti. Mm. That leaves players open, and that's, I think that leaves Mbappe open, and that's how we eventually get this goal. But I thought. That was represent, like a representation of what kept happening for Barcelona, is that they had a narrow back line. PSG would send their fullbacks forward. Barcelona's attackers were all kind of like building up centrally, and that kept giving them outlets out wide. Even the, I can't believe it's the second or third goal, but the one where Dest is sort of at fault because he keeps Florenzi on side. It's literally the same thing I'm talking about, where Jordi Alba this time is having to deal with an overload, it's 2v1. He doesn't have cover on that side. Again, I think it's Griezmann who hasn't done a good job this time. And now you have overloads that PSG can easily play into and have the technical ability to do just that. And I think Dest, to some extent, was routinely put in positions that made him look very bad, but it's because he's marking somebody, then has to sprint and mark somebody else, but still has to cover the person he just left. I think he could have done better on a few occasions, but I thought overall he did okay given what he was being asked to do. The defense I think, rests its case. Joe. <laughs> I, I think this game for me was defined by one thing, and it's exactly what Taylor just detailed. Barcelona was terrified of PSG's front three. Yeah. Right? Think about how they set up. Taylor, you described it so well. Barcelona's back four, because they played out of a 4-3-3, and it, it changed and looked different at times, but that was their base shape. They played out of this 4-3-3, and PSG were also playing out of a 4-3-3, or maybe a 4-2-3. 3-1 if you say Verratti was a number 10 and yeah. not a number 8. 
it's semantics. It doesn't matter a whole lot for the it, sake yeah, of this either conversation. Way, either way, three midfielders. Either way, three yeah. midfielders and either way, three players across the front line. It was Icardi as the number nine, Keane on the right, or Ken? How, how are we saying Moyes? I've heard so it's, many it's different gone, pronunciations. It's gone back to Keane, hasn't it? It was Ken for a while. It's gone it back has. to Keane, I believe. Okay, I'll go, I'll go Keane just for the sake of this conversation. But it's Icardi up top, Keane on the right, and Mbappe on the left. Barcelona dealt with those players by having their, their back four so narrow. And it's almost like you can put your fingers out and have four fingers representing Barcelona's back four, and then three fingers representing PSG's attacking players, and just lace them between each other. And you kind of have an idea of how these, these shapes lined up against each other. And that left so much space out wide for Kurzawa, for Florenzi. Multiple PSG goals came from that. And it happened, again, because Barcelona was terrified of that front three. They were not willing to stretch their back line at all laterally until until Dembele wouldn't track back, until Griezmann wouldn't yeah. track back. And then it looks like at that point, oh, Serginho Dest is scrambling to close down the ball out wide when that was never his job. That was always Dembele's job. I'm not saying that was the right job for Dembele, but I'm saying from the film we watched, it seems pretty clear to me that that's what Kuman wanted Dembele to do. The wisdom of that is genuinely questionable, but I do not think it is fair to heap blame on Serginho Dest in this game. I thought he was actually pretty good going up against Mbappe, or certainly as good as you can expect almost any fullback in Europe to be against Mbappe. Yeah, and I think like a couple things, Joe, in response to that. I do think if we are going to be critical of Serginho Dest, I think one one reason that we can be is I think he did start to get afraid of Kylian Mbappe's pace, and maybe that's part of why he's brought out in the 71st minute. But the, you can make that argument for the one where he does keep players on side is that he, I think, is cheating a little bit because he's afraid of being in a 1v1 with Mbappe. That definitely happens later on. Uh, Dest drops maybe 10 yards deeper than he needs to, I think, because he expects a long ball over the top, and he's trying to give yeah. himself a little cushion. I don't fault him for that, but I've also always had that kind of lingering concern about Dest dealing with long balls over the top, trying to track them and then defend 1v1. I don't think that's his strong suit. So I think he was trying to put himself in a stronger position, but I think that's why he looked more at times all over the place because he wasn't keeping that tight line, although I would say Barcelona weren't either. But I think PSG then, I don't want to just say like, oh, it was just Barcelona not getting it right because I think it's PSG doing really smart things that routinely, if they attack down the left, Mbappe would start very, very wide. And even if they if they were on the left, sometimes you'd have Moise Keane doing the same thing. They'd spread very wide, and then once that initial counterattacking opportunity or that initial ball in wasn't on, they would both drift very central to the point where they were maybe 5 or 10 yards on either side of Icardi in the middle. And that naturally is going to make your fullbacks drop in, and they're going to try to get a little bit tighter because now you've got everybody congregating in the middle. And it gives you this sense of, oh, okay, we forced them into the middle. They've got numbers they're not going to be able to create from there. We've got the numbers like like matched up the way we need. But what you're actually doing is crowding the middle to concede the wings. And so to some extent, it was PSG setting them up to then go central, to then open up space out wide. And I thought that game plan, again, very just very smart, very subtle, but not an easy thing to deal with. And my final thing here would be that it should have been, though, because in that first half, at least, we're playing behind closed doors for the most part. Dembele is on the side of Ronald Koeman. Ronald Koeman is right there and could easily have been communicating better. And and that speaks to, in my mind, either Koeman is expecting Dembele to figure it out or Koeman is so confused by everything else that's happening that he's not able to then spot that one kind of consistent issue. But either way, I don't think it's a particularly good look for Ronald Koeman or uh, Dembele. Taylor, we covered uh, Le Classique on the Weekend Review not so long ago. Um, 
this seemed like a slightly different PSG team to me. Uh, yep. They have much more about them, a lot more to exploit the op opponent, as we've kind of, kind of covered here. But just so much, like, I just noticed the movement a lot more here, the passing mm -hmm. game a lot more here. Playing on the break a bit more than they did against Marseille as well, I thought. And um, they'll just really superb across the board. I think Akadi maybe was trying to lose it for them by wasting a few shots, but that's another story altogether. But they just <laughs> seems like, is, is this more of Pochettino's system slowly setting in, even over the space of a week or two? Yeah, I think so. I also wonder if it's like, if Pochettino is right place, right time to some extent, that he is an established manager with a name. He's got like the pedigree of Spurs and, and I think is maybe just a bit more of like a domineering figure than Thomas Tuchel might have been uh, and then other coaches have been, including Unai Emery. But I also wonder if maybe this is a PSG team that have seen collapses and had different issues in the Champions League and had big personalities come through and almost if they're just in a position where it's like, sure, we're finally w willing to listen now. <laughs> like, like we've calmed down. We've had our days of, of Neymar trying to beat the entire team by himself. We'll play in a more, more of a system. I also think that was part of it, that you didn't have Neymar due to injury. You didn't have Angel Di Maria due to injury. Mm. So you had to adjust a wee bit. I did not think it was going to be uh, keen starting this one, but it was. And I think that ended up being a very smart move from Pochettino. And that to me speaks to Mauricio Pochettino. Yeah, getting this team to play a certain way. And I thought maybe he would go with this midfield three to clog it up and not let Barcelona have as many opportunities. And I think they did that as well. So yeah, I think this is Pochettino getting the team playing at a time when they need to be playing pretty well. And as I mentioned, it's pretty incredible with uh, with Di Maria and Neymar not even featuring in this one. Imagine what they can do when they are back in the fold. Maybe Leo Messi over on the other side thinking, oh, could have been me over there, could have been me. <laughs> Joe, why don't we talk about Messi, who once again was... Um, Charlie Brown music, Arrested Development meme, uh, looking down at the floor for most of the game, wasn't he? Uh, it, I just got the impression he was, <laughs> there you go. was uh, before he slowly collapsed on the floor. Um, it, it's, I got the impression this was a man thinking, I could have got out of here after that 8-2 last year. I could have gone to Paris. Uh, now I'm never going to win another Champions League. Definitely not with this team. Um, do you think he's full of ruined lament, if not regret, Joe? Maybe, right? He's not going to win another Champions League with Barcelona. That's just not going to happen. Right now, the way that Ronald Koeman is using Messi, Messi is the system. Barcelona still do a lot of good things in possession and still have some structure at times. But, you know, they've come such a long way. They've fallen such a long way from when Pep Guardiola was using Messi as this great cog within a system and still the, the biggest and brightest and shiniest cog but a cog. And now Barcelona just look different. They're almost unrecognizable. I still do think their best trait right now is their possession. And in this game, that wasn't even enough, right? They couldn't even work the ball and get create consistent enough chances. Not that they were bad at that, but they couldn't do enough to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with PSG. Right now, Messi playing as that number nine who it, it just goes wherever he wants, right? You can call it a false nine. You can call it whatever you want. He has the freedom to do absolutely anything. Reminds me of, of Papu Gomez with Sevilla, which we can talk about later on. But Messi does as he pleases, and a lot of that is great, and a lot of that helps Barcelona, but a lot of that, especially on the defensive side for a team that was already going to be in trouble in transition, defending against PSG's counterattacks and defending against Mbappe, when Messi leads your line, man, Barcelona struggled to contain PSG's attack. They struggled to put pressure on the ball at all, even in their own defensive block. One of the things I noticed on a couple of PSG's goals is they started with center backs or with Paredes as that number six, spraying the ball wide to a fullback, to Kurzawa on the left, to Florenzi on the right. And ideally, those passes don't even happen. Ideally, the PSG center backs don't even have a chance to spray that ball wide. 
because they're being pressed by the front three from Barcelona. But in this game, their, their game plan was so out of whack that Barcelona's two wingers were back defending as part of a back six, and Messi was doing whatever he wants up top. And man, you've got to just be thinking to yourself, what am I doing here? If you're Messi, what am I doing? I'm not really contributing defensively. We can't get anything going consistently in the attack. So yeah, man, I, I bet he might have been thinking to himself, PSG looks awfully nice right about now. And Jonathan Wilson wrote a very good piece for The Guardian about sort of like, is Messi sitting there at Barcelona looking at Kylian Mbappe and thinking like, we bought the wrong young French attacker? <laughs> uh, the the anecdote he goes with in that one is that when they're up 1-0, uh, Barcelona's pressure, I think, forces PSG into a bad turnover. Dembele has this shooting opportunity and instead basically insteps it straight to Keylor Navas. And then PSG go like down the field and score moments later. And the idea that like maybe with a more like clinical striker who's been, maybe been a little bit more successful in front of goal, that ends up being 2-0 and, and things are entirely different. But it's not because Mbappe is on the other side of the field. And I think then what that requires if you're, if you're playing a team like PSG who have the talent they do and have the ability to move the ball is, to Joe's point, to keep possession. And that's going back to the tiki-taka days with Pep. You defend by not giving up the ball. You defend by keeping it moving and frustrating your opponent, and and they have to work and work and work to even try to win the ball back. And by the time they do, they're tired and not in an advantageous attacking position. But it's not, oh, we've lost the ball, now everybody work really hard and high press if you're Barcelona to win that ball back. And I think when they're not able to get the lead, to maintain possession, to just keep creating overloads and triangles, you see the downside to that, which is routinely Sergio Busquets kind of stepping into tackles and recognizing, I am not going to win this, I will get a yellow card because I'm going to be a step slow, and so he pulls out. I saw the same thing from Frankie de Jong. There's a moment in the second half in which I saw de Jong and Dembele both fail to track a run from Marco Verratti, who gets the ball. I think it ends up being a corner for PSG. And they turn and kind of look at each other like, was that supposed to be me or you? And they literally both just shrug and then walk back to defend <laughs> oh, the corner. And it's just like, that's not <laughs> what you're supposed to be doing, fellas. You maybe got to figure that out a little bit more. Otherwise, you're going to c- concede some more goals, and that is precisely what they did. Oh, boy. Well, to paraphrase the Simpsons, Barcelona's annual tradition of uh, coming out of the Champions League at this stage in embarrassing fashion is becoming a yearly custom. Um, is there any <laughs> way back for Barcelona in the second leg here with, Barcelona, uh, with PSG just with the uh, four away goals? Joe? Not a chance. Right? It's not going to happen. PSG are one of the favorites to win this whole thing right now after how they played earlier this week. Barcelona are dysfunctional uh, at an organizational level and on the field it's just not going to happen. PSG are, are too good, and, and Barcelona's not going to be able to come back. It's one of those where it really requires you to think about away goals for a moment, because I do that all the time. I'm like, I mean, it's only three goals. Like They could they could get a 3-0 lead, and then I'm like, nope, that still wouldn't get it done, because <laughs> it's still then 4-4 on aggregate, PSG with the advantage on away goals. So they would have to score four. That doesn't feel as likely to me. And this does feel like, under Pochettino, a stronger PSG team. I don't think necessarily they're going to win the entire thing. I don't think they're not going to win the entire thing, but I think it's a sterner task than Barcelona have faced when playing PSG previously. Mm. I think this one is also more or less a dead rubber. We'll see how wrong we are in a couple weeks. If only there were a precedent for this fixture having a big turnaround yeah. in the second leg. <laughs> if, if only. only. Yeah. If only. <laughs> I mean, the, the, lack of, the lack of a crowd, once again, I think, is part of this because you don't have the, the Camp Nou crowd there to pick the team up and keep them going. Maybe this one ends with some booing instead. But simultaneously, you don't have the pressure of the Parisian crowd being nervous of, is this going to happen? And there is something to be said for that. Like, if the entire crowd is on, like, 
nervously waiting, like, is this it? Is it? Are they? Oh no, they scored. Is this how it's going to go? And if the entire stadium has this, like, uh oh, we're in trouble, we're down one nil vibe, that I think does kind of bleed into the team. So to some extent, I wonder if being behind closed doors in the second leg is all, all the better for PSG. Either way, I think they're going to be just fine. Well, uh, despite being in the home of fortified wine, Andre Pirlo wasn't very happy with Juventus uh, against Porto. <laughs> We're going to cover that one just in a mo. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. We are back. Porto against Juventus. This one finished 2-1 to FC Porto, recording their first ever win against Juve in a European competition. Bravo, etc., etc. Joe, what did we make of Porto in terms of the way they set up and the way they went about this thing? First of all, I'm just so proud. I'm so proud of my team and my city and my club as the dictator of Porto. Uh, Um, I think... They put in a really good performance, which is good for them. I think that was important for their, you know, just general ability to continue playing Joe, for the club. Joe, you straight up sound like a dictator <laughs> right now. <laughs> like, you, you straight up are like, it was good for them. It would have been bad otherwise. Yeah. Like, I'm a little bit terrified of Joe right now. I Joe is actually standing outside a church holding a Bible upside down, by the way. Yeah, no, that's mission accomplished. <laughs> that's mission accomplished on my end. To get to the tactical stuff, right? Because that's, that's the real bread and butter. That's the real bread and butter here. Porto came out in the shape that I did not think they were going to come out in. I said, you know, oh, Taylor, Ryan, they're going to play a five at the back shape because that's what they did against Manchester City in the the group stage. And I was wrong. I was totally wrong. They stuck with the 4-4-2 that Sergio Conceição has been using in the league and that he used a little bit in that group stage as well. But they did it in such an interesting way. And I want to know if you guys noticed this at all. So they set up in that 4-4-2 
against Juventus's possession buildup, possession shape. Juventus's just sounds wrong. I'm just going to say Juve's possession Juventi. shape. Juventus. Juventus against Juventus's possession shape. Uh, that that Andrea Pirlo sets that team up in a back three at times in possession. It's a four four two that kind of rotates in, and the center backs shift over, and Weston McKennie tucks inside and moves higher. It's very fluid the way Juve attack, and so. When Porto was back defending in their 4-4-2, Juve were almost always in a 3-5-2 of sorts, a 3-4-1-2. It doesn't matter a whole lot. But it's a back three against a front two, which, you know, kind of ding, 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 that's, that's an issue for Porto, right? That's a problem. When you're playing a 4-4-2 and you have two strikers against three center backs, you can get overloaded in that space pretty easily. Porto's solution to that, and their plan, their deliberate at- defensive plan coming into this game, was to say to their front two, we don't want you to ever pressure the center center back. We do not want you to touch Delict. We want you to leave him wide open, let him do whatever he wants on the ball, and step wider. Step to Chiellini, step to Danilo, and then it changed and Delict moved wider after Chiellini left in the first half. But we don't want you to mess with that center center back. Instead, we want you to devote all of your time, all of your energy, to just keeping tabs on the outside center backs, but mostly clogging up that midfield. With your four actual midfielders and that front two, Porto made life miserable for Juventus. They could not break through the middle. They could not play balls on the ground into McKennie, into Cristiano Ronaldo, into any of their midfield or attacking players. It happened maybe once, twice, three times in this game for 90-plus minutes. Porto's game plan to allow that center center back to get on the ball and just pretty much force the, the back line for Juve to play long diagonals out to the wing or they were fine to let Juve attack. They said, you can have that space for as long as you want. We're going to clog the middle. We're going to keep our front two wide and block off those passing lanes. Man, it was it was such a good game plan from Conceição. And if they hadn't given up that away goal at the very end, they would be in a really, really strong position going into the second leg. Joe, is there a bigger flex in world soccer than to be 2-1 up against Juventus and then to just bring your son on for the last two minutes? <laughs> just to say, go on, go on, lad, go and have two minutes. No, to answer your question, no. No, that is the, the best thing that you can possibly do to flex on Andrea Pirlo, and it was beautiful. <laughs> I hope it's a move that Pirlo one day does himself. Uh, uh, Taylor, when we covered Juventus uh, against Napoli on the weekend review, it was the midfield we did point to, and Joe's mentioned it there as mm-hmm. well. Uh, it seems like maybe Andre Pirlo doesn't know his best midfield, or maybe he's just experimenting a bit too much. We had McKenney over on the left here. Uh, Chiesa on the right, he has been on the left previously, although he's been getting some stick for that. And Bentancur, who we mentioned at the top of the show, uh, didn't cover himself in glory, of course, for that opening goal. But... Not great throughout either. No, I mean, I I think that opening minute is just so confusing and such a strange outlier because Bentham Core is a midfielder that I think of as being very calm in possession, very reliable, pretty stable, keeps it moving, doesn't try flashy things. And I watched the, the opening goal like maybe 30 times trying to figure out... You might have a problem. ...what is going on. 30 times? Well, it's just every single time you notice a little little nuance, a little difference, a little thing. And I'll say, you know, you got like four replays at once. It's fine. Uh, but <laughs> it's I, I kept trying to see, like, did somebody take the wrong angle? Does somebody slip? Is there a miscommunication? And all it is, I think, is that Benson Core doesn't – he, like, tries to be too clever in the moment. And I think, if anything, it's just Porto doing a really good job of – he, he checks his shoulder and thinks, like, oh, I've got time. And then by the time he receives the ball, he realizes, oh, I'm under pressure. So he's trying to kind of evaluate and adjust as he needs to and is doing an okay job. The mistake he then makes is I think he goes for a no-look back pass. And I think he ch- is trying to 
disguise what he's doing because he's telegraphed by checking his shoulder, by turning to the right, then looking to the left, but he's not going to go there, so he cuts back. And I think the no-look pass is designed to like completely throw off Porto, and if it didn't get throws off all of Juve and leads to that opener. Mm. And that's a minor incident, and I'm not even going to like extract from that into like much larger problems. Minor incident, you watched 30 times. Yeah, go on. Yeah, well, in terms of, like, like, because then the next question is, like, is this something Pirlo got wrong? Like, sh- was he playing uh, Ronaldo as a holding midfielder because Ronaldo was strong and good on the ball? Like, no, it wasn't a systematic error, but I do think it was maybe Pirlo. I would almost go the opposite of, like, he wasn't willing to experiment enough because when they handed Barcelona that 3-0 def- uh, defeat in the Champions League in the group stage— they're in a back three. And he, not only that, but they're using center backs to step into midfield to create overloads. But then you still have the wing backs to give you those wide attacking options. And here, I was a little bit concerned because where they've struggled was when they had uh, like their kind of standard 4-4-2 shape against a team doing something similar. They tend to get negated. They tend to get balanced out pretty quickly. And then it requires adjustment or individual performance. And sometimes that can work, and sometimes when it comes to teams with Cristiano Ronaldo, individual performance means Ronaldo starts demanding the ball in weird positions and drifts wide to try to find space, and that's not where you want him because it it takes away any sort of attacking fluidity through the middle, but it also means you're going to get sequences where you have two and three players marked by one player because they're all standing near each other. And I think, to some extent, Pirlo maybe set his team up a little bit wrong. Mm. I don't want to like then throw the entire team out or throw out everything he's been doing, but I think he then doesn't really help his team find their way back in. Certainly the halftime speech wasn't anything to write home about, given that they then concede immediately after the break. Right. That probably didn't help either. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I guess that's a concentration issue, conceding immediately after both halves start. I think that's, that's certainly something yeah. to be said about that. And it does seem to me like Pirlo's just moving the chess pieces around in midfield a bit too much. And, uh, you know, th- there's a, there's something to be said about consistency and that yeah. kind of thing. But uh, th- for me, it was a lack of concentration there. Again, caught sleeping with both goals. Uh, the defence sitting back maybe more than they should be. But maybe, Joe, overall, it's what what you were saying is they just weren't prepared for what Porto did. Yeah, I think Juve were completely blindsided by Conceição's game plan. They could say, okay, we're expecting a 4-4-2. I saw Pirlo quote. I read I read a Pirlo quote, excuse me. I guess I have to see it to read it, but you get the idea. In a Michael Cox article <laughs> that, that was referencing Pirlo before the game, and he said, yeah, you know, we expect Porto to kind of play like Atletico Madrid. And that's exactly what Porto did so Juve knew that part, but they didn't know how much Porto were going to do that. They didn't know the specific tactical, the little intricate details of how Porto were going to play defensively. Splitting that front two wide, completely congesting the midfield, and, and they were unprepared to deal with that. They could not get the ball in between the lines in the midfield, and when they, when they did play those long diagonals out to the wings, because that's basically the only option they had in the attack, they weren't able to use those spaces effectively. And I just want to continue to give credit to Porto because this is a classic things-can-be-two-things situation. Juve were bad in possession. They were straight-up bad in possession. But Porto were incredible defensively. They shifted well. They moved well as a unit. They knew exactly what they needed to do, and they executed so well in moments. They pressed efficiently in moments. They sat deeper efficiently in moments. They moved horizontally as a block really well. It's hard to think of one thing they did wrong in this game outside of allowing that goal towards the end of the second half. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I I agree. I think that one goal could be a problem for them in that second leg. But I think instead of uh, being negative about that, I'll be positive about Was it Ryan Bailey who suggested that if Porto went up uh, early, this could be problematic for Juve? Twas I, Taylor. Twas you. I will give you credit for that. And I will say that, like, 
if I were going to apply the like amateur soccer understanding of this game, which I will now, I will say that I have been in games in which I felt like, okay, like we're up for it, we got to get a good result, we want to play strong from the start, and then you concede really early. And if it does come from individual mistakes, it's not just that you've conceded early, it does destroy the confidence a little bit. Because there's that feeling of like, I know Benton Core is very good, but that's an odd one. Can we? Like, it's not even to say that they then don't trust him anymore, but it makes you think. And I think that was also part of the problem for Juve is that they were thinking too much and not doing some of the things that are almost instinctual to them. So their counterattacks, rather than be these rapid, quick combinations that rely on the physicality of Ronaldo or Morata when he's there, it wasn't Morata to start, it was Kulusevsky, who's got the pace and the dribbling ability. I didn't feel like they used that. I didn't feel like they tried to counterattack and tried to make Porto uncomfortable. I felt like they were very like, okay, let's not concede from our own possession this time, guys, but let's build slowly. Let's make sure we keep it. Let's all just be calm. And you have to break out of that mode. You have When you're 1-0 down against a team that are content for you to just move the ball and not be, really be risky, you have to take chances because otherwise the other team doesn't really get uncomfortable and instead your team starts to get uncomfortable and tries different things that aren't maybe going to game according to plan, excuse me. And so just how often I would see Juve have a counterattacking opportunity and then cut it back or then it would slow down and kind of move the ball around it just felt like they were rattled and never were able to get truly back into it at least not for the first like 60 minutes or so we'll uh, we'll pull Juventus off of your psychologist couch for a moment there Taylor and we'll agree that um, the best moment of this game was when Ronaldo was attacking down the left channel and he ran straight into Sandro who basically blocked him like an NFL player yeah right yeah and then, and then there was, you could see with Ronaldo, there's always those moments of like, you know, when you trip on the sidewalk and you have to like, it's, it's contractually obligated that you look down at the sidewalk because they're like, what, that, that sidewalk has never <laughs> been like that before. It wasn't me. Like you could see Ronaldo sort of trying to do that. Like, was I fouled? Was it his fault? It's, it's somebody, it was someone else's fault. I know that much. I know. Was it a ball kid? Who did this? Like you could see him look around and that moment of frustration again, I think speaks to how Juve were feeling about this game. Yeah. I blame the kids. He thought it was running into a tiger and he thought it would run away and be scared of him. That's <laughs> I think it's fair to blame Juve's kits for most problems that's fine <laughs> Joe any more on this game before we move on uh it's, it seems quite delicately poised for the second leg this one doesn't it yeah this of the games we've talked about so far I think is set up for the most interesting second leg between Leipzig Liverpool between Barcelona PSG this one is going to be a, a really great battle are Porto going to come in with the same defensive game plan are they going to say okay Juve you couldn't beat us this way the first time try again, and we're going to come out there and run it back? Or are they going to change things up? Are Juve, is Juventi, is Juventi's possession <laughs> scheme going to be able to break them down? Are they going to be more effective breaking through the middle or certainly more effective out wide? So many question marks in this one. And the score is close enough that I think it's going to make for a compelling return, uh, return leg. Juventi, can I help? It's just, it just makes me think of the Winklevi from, uh, from the Facebook movie. <laughs> the Winklevi. Yeah, that's where, see, you don't want to run to that issue. Joe, you've already solved this. You, you choose to only pluralize the full name, <laughs> Juventuses, and then you constantly call them Juve. Juve's, man. Juve's approach. Yeah, I like, I like oh. Ryan's slightly more complicated, or certainly my really, really complicated <laughs> solution. Uh, think yeah. harder, not smarter. Isn't that what it is? Yeah. I, it, feel, it feels right to have something Latin sounding for... Uh, I think it's work. Yeah. Work harder, not smarter. Or no, work smart, not harder. Yeah, I deliberately picked like the wrong one because I'm clearly like working and thinking harder than it should be. <sighs> clearly, we're all about manual labor, <laughs> okay. the three of us. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the dictator of Portugal is playing 4D chess is what we can say here. Correct. <laughs> yes. That's correct. I will give Ryan... 
I have to blame Ryan uh, for a negative thing very quickly, though, because Ryan did ask, is there a chance that Pirlo will break up Bonucci and Chiellini? And I said, no, of course (laughs) not. That would be foolish. Ryan, I think you were dead on with that question because I think there was some fear about, like, maybe the lack of pace with Chiellini and Bonucci, maybe themselves getting caught in a counter, and I think that's why Delict was in there. Not saying that it's like his fault. I will say that Chiellini and Bonucci have not scored a goal inside the first minute when they were paired together, as I can remember. Uh, But I will also be really interested in if Pirlo goes with that same back line, if he does go with a back three, if he changes it up and does go with Chiellini and Bonucci, what differences there are between this game and the second leg for that defense, I think will tell us a little bit about what Pirlo thought went wrong in this game. Well, this one is delicately poised for the second leg, as is the final game we're going to be talking about today. Sevilla against Dortmund. This one finishing 3-2 to the Germans. Uh, Erling Haaland admitting he was inspired by Kylian Mbappe in this one with two goals and an assist in this one as well. Uh, As I say, setting up a rather brilliant second leg. The first note I'll make, gents, is that we were disappointed by Julian Nagelsmann's lack of wearing uh, the Joker outfit. Well, not the Joker, the Riddler's outfit. The Riddler, yeah. In in his game. Uh, Julian Lopetegui here, I think he was cosplaying as an extra from The Sopranos or, or maybe a divorced dad. He had, he had quite a look going on, didn't he? Or was it just me thinking that? <laughs> what, the tracksuit? It was the, like, it was the tracksuit. The, like, slightly ill-fitting tracksuit? I think tracksuit? he had an ill-fitting tracksuit, the chain, it was the posture. It was all like, yeah, yeah I, I, I've got to pay my alimony now. That was the kind of look he had going on. <laughs> he was... In the pinky ring, several cell phones in different hands that connected the different services. Yeah, there's there's some things going on. There's some things going on. Oh, well, there's certainly some things going on with Sevilla as well. Joe, what did you make yeah. of them, the way they set up um, as, uh, of their star players, with Papu Gomez, Rakitic? Tell us all about them. Sevilla came and played kind of how we thought they were going to. They tried to keep the ball. They played out of a 4-3-3, 4-2-3-1, kind of like what PSG did with Verratti, where he looked like a number 10 at times underneath that front three, and other times he looked like just a number eight next to Idrissa Ganage or whoever else in that midfield for PSG. Rakitic played as that kind of hybrid number eight, number 10. Defensively, he was underneath a striker, and, and Sevilla were defending in a 4-2-3-1. Offensively, sometimes he'd be higher, sometimes he'd be in a regular midfield spot, sometimes he'd drop deeper, and it was very flexible in terms of how Sevilla possessed the ball, and part of that is down to Papu Gomez. I mentioned his name earlier. Mm. He played as the left winger in this 4-3-3-4-2-3-1, but not really, right? He goes, as, he goes wherever he wants. He does as he pleases. And when you're Papu Gomez, that means you like to drop deeper into midfield and potentially you know, give the ball away or get blindsided in route to a dormant goal. Joe, for me, this game was a, a bit of a game of two halves for Sevilla for two reasons. One is that uh, when you asked, when you said that this is, we went into this how we expected them to play, I expected them to do some poop-housery, as we like to say on this show, <laughs> which is they are poop-housery FC, basically, Sevilla, aren't they? And they kind of, I feel like they turn it on a lot more in the second half. And also, I think, did they make some sort of defensive changes as well? Fernando dropped a bit deeper coming into the, into the defense for the second half too, right? Yeah, the structure changed, and they played out of a, a three-at-the-back shape. It looked more like a 3-4-3, three, three, but again, Papu Gomez, big asterisks there because he goes mm-hmm. wherever he wants. So that's not a bad thing, by the way. I feel like I said that very passive-aggressively. I, don't, I have nothing against Papu Gomez here. He's really fun to watch. He would have killed MLS. He would have destroyed Major League Soccer if he'd gone to Cincinnati. Wow, that would have been incredible. Anyway, Sevilla played out of a three-of-the-back shape in the second half, and they did some, some good things. But, Ryan, I think the reason why they looked maybe a little bit better is because they were losing. They're down 2-1 at that point. Dortmund have very little incentive. Playing away from home, 
they have very little incentive to try to keep the ball. Like we talked about with Porto. After Porto went up early, they say, okay, you guys can have the ball and we're going to sit back and defend. Dortmund, even though that's not really in their DNA, did the exact same thing. And so that just gave Sevilla more time to possess, more time to create with with Navas as that right wing back. Now, instead of a right back, he could go further forward. With Conde playing as that right-sided center back, he could also step forward and play line-breaking passes. So Sevilla looked better in the attack, but I think that's just a byproduct of them having more possession. Now, Sevilla hadn't conceded, or Bono, their goalkeeper, hadn't conceded in 729 minutes before uh, Dehoud got that first goal. A very impressive goal it was. So, Taylor, what I could say is that Bono didn't have the edge when the angle of Haaland beat uh, him. Yeah? Yeah? Ten points for Ryan? <laughs> ten points for Ryan. Yay! Ten, ten comedy points. Ten comedy points. Angle of Haaland uh, is, a, is a very uh, <laughs> flimsy one of Angel of Haaland, by the way, if you didn't quite get there. You did your best. And you know what? I respect it. I respect what you've done here. I kind of respect respect what Terzic? Terzic? That's another one that it started Terzic, and now all the commentators are saying Terzic, and I doubt myself. You do you, Terzic. I'm, <laughs> I'm sticking with Terzic. I will give credit to him for this one, because I said in the preview recorded last week that we'll see what he does this weekend against Hoffenheim. And if Emre Jean is still that right back, then expect Emre Jean to continue to be the right back for Dortmund. And Emerjan was the right back against Hoffenheim, in which they conceded two goals and did not look defensively solid. And I think that did then inform what Terzic did in this game, which was to move Emerjan central to start Mateo Mori, who is a much, much more adept attacking player than Emerjan. But Emerjan is much better in the middle of the field. And I think this was kind of a return to what works for Dortmund is the Christmas tree. That I would say mm. they went with a 4-3-2-1. They had a much stronger midfield. You've got one more player in there who can keep the ball moving and gives you the pivot. But it gives... Marco Royce and Jaden Sancho, the ability to transition into attack when it's just Royce underneath Holland, it becomes much more like Holland trying to knock it down for Royce and then they combine. I think putting Sancho in a more attacking position, in a more comfortable attacking position at that, so that it almost becomes a front two at times, just works so much better because you can triple team Erling Holland as Sevilla tried, and he might still bring the ball down and beat you, but also if you triple team him and he just flicks it on, chances are now you're in a 1v1 with Jaden Sancho, and he's going to do things. And I thought this was Dortmund sort of doing the Dortmund thing's very well, mm. and when they do, they both make me choke and also win a game pretty comfortably. <laughs> well, speaking of the Dortmund things, for me, Taylor, the, 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 a characteristic of Dortmund is to be brilliant in one game and stun us all and then oscillate to yeah, being very out. poor in the out. next game and us saying, oh, we need to fire the manager and in, case, and in some cases, mm-hmm. firing the manager. Uh, and it seems like that oscillation of good to bad to one game was condensed into one single game for here because we had some mm-hmm. very up and down moments and we had uh, Dortmund's old friends set pieces coming back to haunt them uh, for this one in particular yeah. with the ongoing uh, pretty yeah. casually unmarked for that, uh, <laughs> for that uh, second severe goal. Well, there's that. There, yeah, there is that. There is that. But it was, <laughs> it was place like Marco Royce because it, sometimes yeah. he seemed like he was absolutely purring and looking fantastic. But then he'd like take a weird shot kind of cross that didn't pay out uh, you mm-hmm. know pay off and he, he just seemed like he was very up and down and maybe he was a, sort of a defining characteristic of this team in a way do you have i don't know if either one of you has this because i i do have like mild hoarder tendencies and when i go to get rid of stuff like i'll always go to get rid of t-shirts and i'm like oh but i wore it that one time oh i might wear it again it could look good in this situation and i find it really hard to get rid of stuff and that is sort of how i feel like dortmund are with marco royce a little bit of like <laughs> like he did have that one ridiculous back heel that one time when he didn't even look but knew exactly where somebody was and he has these incredible moments he just then has these moments where it's like oh marco royce is still in the field 
I haven't heard his name in 20 minutes. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, this was one of those performances where he does some good stuff, but then he doesn't provide maybe the consistency at times that you would want. He does end up coming out relatively early in the second half. Um, at least, oh, I guess it's not that early, is it? It's the 80th minute. I was thinking it was like the 70th. So I take that back. I'll walk that back <laughs> a little bit. But Marco, I think maybe it's also because I just want Gio Reyna to be starting every single game yeah. and Marco Royce doing well, Jaden Sancho doing well. Maybe that limits the opportunities a little bit, but I also don't know... If Giorena would have maybe improved this Dortmund team, I think they looked about as good as they could uh, for the opponent and for the setup. We did have two Englishmen, of course, Drew Bellingham and Erling Haaland. We could have had a third in Giorena. That is a shame. Um, we can move on from that, though. Uh, You're going to count Jaden Sancho in there? Jaden Sancho is another one. <laughs> Don't forget the actual Englishman. <laughs> and Drew Bellingham, of course. Now, um, uh, uh, Joe, I've got a question for you. Let's say you are the owner slash coach slash person in charge at We've Got oh, Lots boy. of Oil Money FC. Uh, you've got Erling Haaland or Kylian Mbappe on the transfer market. Which do you pick? Because they both put on pretty magnificent uh, shows uh, in this week. And look, just Erling Haaland in this game, he seems like he's just the whole package. The off-the-ball movement, the spatial awareness, the, 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 the timing of the runs, mostly the finishing, the close but com- the ball control. It, it just seems unreal. And obviously Mbappe is uh, not bad either. I've, I've given you a very difficult hmm. question, Joe. I'm sorry about that. You have, and I think we might have kind of buried the lead on this whole Dortmund game and this whole Dortmund discussion because Erling Haaland was ridiculous. He was every bit as good as Mbappe was the day before, and maybe it's just me and my Twitter feed or the the shows that I listen to, but I heard maybe half the discussion about Erling Haaland. And I think it's it's a lot of PSG were playing Barcelona in this big game, this turning of the tide. That's the narrative, right? And it's the PK. It's the PK. It's the PK photo. It's, It's. it's, the, it's him getting completely posterized, this historically rock-solid defender, who is also, I think, it's a little, like, this is way too harsh, but it's a little Tom Brady-esque of, like, his life is just a little too perfect. Like, he's married to Shakira, he plays for Barcelona, he wins the World Cup, he wins the Euros, he wins the Champions League. Barry Glendening on Football Weekly had a great line where he was like, most mornings I wake up sad I'm not Gerard Piquet. Today is the only time I've woken up sad not to be Gerard Piquet. So I think it's, like, how embarrassed PK looked in that one moment is maybe that difference because Erling Holland always makes people look embarrassed yeah. like he's just so huge he can throw people around that I, I think that's probably part of it is just how ridiculously embarrassing Kylian Mbappe was for some of those uh, Barcelona players no that's mm-hmm. a great point Mbappe dominated that game just like Erling Holland dominated this 3-2 win against Sevilla I, I want to highlight one piece of his game before I answer your question Ryan on Dortmund's second goal they're, they're, they have the ball in their own half, so they're in possession, and it's Akanji who has the ball as that right-sided center back against Sevilla's 4-2-3-1. So you've got one striker against two center backs. That means one center back is almost always going to be free. In this moment, it was Akanji who dribbled forward a little bit and then played a line-breaking ball forward to Holland, who had dropped in between the lines. And that, that phrase sounds so normal, but if you're Erling Holland, his game is never to do that. His game is to break in behind the back line. He almost always tries, as soon as Dortmund are moving the ball up the field in possession, he tries to break in behind the opposing right center back so he can make a diagonal run, get the ball on his left foot in the box, and shoot low and hard to the right corner. He does that over and over and over again, but not in this moment. In this moment, he dropped between the lines, got on the ball, then turned all in one motion, sprinted forward, beat a handful of Sevilla players, one two with Jaden Sancho, and finished. Right? If Erling Holland can consistently add you know, that element to his game where he drops between the lines, 
it's over. It's over for defenders in Europe. And so, man, that was just a little tease on, on another development we've seen in Erling Holland's game. We saw it yesterday as we're recording right now. We're likely going to see it again in the future. If not, you know, maybe he's not as well-rounded as we think he is. But to answer your question, Ryan, I will <laughs> say it totally depends on what my uh, oil FC team needs. If I have a left winger already, I might go for Erling Holland. If I need that versatility because Mbappe I think can play any spot in the front three really well but as a number nine really well as a left winger really well so I'm going to totally cop out here and say it, it depends no, on the not. squad yeah, no, you're you're your, team has, your team has whatever you need Joe your team has whatever you need <laughs> to allow you to hire either one of these players Erling Holland. that's the answer Erling Holland. <laughs> <laughs> what, about you? Well, what about you guys then what about you guys you're honorarily in charge of Oil City FC or whatever it was of now he's a dictator of two different things. Uh, um, I think so. Uh, naturally, I would say Kylian Mbappe. I think it, it, like for the the pace alone is just so ridiculous. Like, and he does. He runs. My wife is the one to point this out. His his stride. Is, like he looks strange again football weekly had a thing where it's like that photo every limb is at a right yeah, angle yeah. and it doesn't seem like he should be fast like a cartoon but it's he has he runs like a sprinter he runs like usain bolt that he's so fast it like requires him to have strange movements to like stay on the ground uh i think his just like how breathtakingly fast he is combined with how clinical he seems to be when he wants to be on occasion in front of goal is where I would go Mbappe. The only thing that would give me a little bit of hesitation would just be that if he were to have a couple hamstring injuries, we've seen that kind of really derail players' career when they're based on on speed. Mbappe brings a lot of other things to the table. He will be a good striker even when he's in his 30s and is losing some of that pace. But if he were to have those types of issues that do slow him down a little bit, I think if Erling Haaland had those same issues, I think it impacts him less because he is so big and has other things, as Joe's already talked about. But if we're both going to be – they're both going to be healthy for the next three seasons, I think I'm going killing Mbappe. So I'm the tying vote here then. I guess, Correct. on this question. Um, before this week, I would have said Erling Haaland, because as I mentioned, I think he is the full package. But just watching Mbappe in this game, it did hammer home. And watching him in the Classique as well, it's just so talented. And that I think it was his first goal where he, showed, he used both his feet in the box and had really good close control as yeah, well. Yeah. And I think that was one that was kind of similar to the one he scored at the World Cup. Was it against Argentina? It was like a, basically a pretty similar goal. Um, I, 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 I'm not sure anymore. I think it's just about Erling Haaland edging it for me, just because I think he's, I think he's got even more potential to come from him as well. Uh, what what listeners can't see is that just off screen, Joe has sent over his goons, and they're now standing like on either side of Ryan Bailey. So he went from like maybe it's Kylian Mbappe <laughs> to they showed up, and now he's definitely on Erling Haaland's the side. The goons travel fast. The, the goons again. travel from from Phoenix to <laughs> North uh, to North. No, where are you, Ryan? North Carolina. North Carolina. Yeah, they travel. They travel from Arizona to North Carolina. Look at these split really fast. Yeah, Joe's Joe's got that goon network. <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty <laughs> impressive. The henchman network. He just uh, sends them where they ever need to oh. go, like Grubhub. Members of that Joanon cult, which is uh, getting really big these days. <laughs> They're everywhere. They're in North Carolina, that's for sure. Anyway. <laughs> Guys, I think this is an interesting week uh, because we saw Messi and Ronaldo sort of not having a good game and Haaland yeah. and Mbappe being rather good. Did it feel like this was the passing of the mantle a little bit, Taylor? Uh, I will say no, but I will say no for like not the reason that you would expect. It feels like we've been having the passing of the mantle a little bit. Just that 
like Messi is still incredible. Don't get me wrong. Ronaldo is still incredible. They're both very good at soccer, but they don't have that same. It's like Mourinho when he was first at Chelsea, and it was that, like, I do not want my team playing them. I know they're going to lose. There's no defending it. Didier Drogba's going to score. There's nothing to be done about it. That's how Ronaldo used to be. That's how Messi used to be. And I think you can see that taking its toll now, where both of them have such high expectations on their shoulders, but maybe don't have the ability at this point to play 90 minutes every single game and have that impact. And I think Holland and Mbappe do. So I think we've been seeing it, but I think the only reason why I sort of waffle on that is just because it wasn't like I was expecting Messi to blow the doors off Mbappe and then things totally turned around and it was like, wow, I didn't see this coming. It's sort of like, yeah, like Kylian Mbappe is physically gifted and certainly is more gifted than physically gifted than Lionel Messi at this point. So to some extent, it kind of went the way I thought it would, though I do still have a lot of sympathy for Lionel Messi because it feels like you can see him, to your initial point, Ryan, looking around and thinking, eh, maybe maybe somewhere else I kind of rediscover some form and become unplayable yet yeah. again. Joe, we know you like things to remain in power for a long time, but um, did, you, did you see the passing of the torture? It's hard because... You're right, I do like to, to see people remain in power. Um, <laughs> it's hard, though, because I think... And you guys can correct me on this if you'd like, but I think to pass a torch, you kind of have to pass it to to someone who's going to fill your shoes, right? That's the idea. You're passing it to the next in line. And I just don't think there's anyone in line after Messi and Ronaldo because not, not, not because we're not going to see great players, not because we're not going to see generational talents. We are, and I think we are seeing that right now with Mbappe and with Holland. But I don't think we're going to see two players be as dominant for as long as Messi and Ronaldo yeah, have right. been for the last 10, 12, 13 years. So it feels like... It, it feels like, you know, that narrative just isn't super productive. And it's fun and it's exciting. But I'm more just excited that we're going to get to see Mbappe and Erling Holland play for the next 10 years. And hopefully they'll stay healthy for large stretches of that time. But just the odds of us seeing two generational talents be healthy and be dominant and play so many games against each other so often for the next decade seems so unlikely. So, yeah, we're seeing two great players continue to get better and better. And two great players who have been great for the last 10, 15 years get worse as that happens. We're seeing that, but I don't know that we're seeing the passing of the torch. Okay. Yeah, what Joe said. I agree with Joe. I retract my earlier statement and agree with Joe. Joe. We're not. I mean, it's we have, I would say there's, in my mind, like five players who are in that conversation for greatest of all time. And we're talking about two of them here in yeah. the form of Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo. Erling Haaland and Kylian Mbappe can be incredible players, some of the best players, but it's going to take a lot of staying power for them to get into that conversation. So, yeah, I agree with Joe. Well said. Well, Thank I'm you. looking forward to um, the Norway against the USA uh, 2026 World Cup final. We'll see what settles it there, shall we? Oh, That'd be fun. I, yeah. Martin Odegaard dishing balls to Erling Haaland <laughs> and uh, Weston McKinney taking him out. Yeah, Taylor's I'm confident. I'm terrified. I am terrified of that happening. And for the record, um, that'll be the French's turn to um, have a rebellion and go out in the group stage again on the 2026. <laughs> that's why they won't be in that final. For the record, I, I forget, yeah, we got to do the math yeah. on like what, what, like it's every other tournament they crash out. Is that they're due one? They're due one, definitely. <laughs> All right, <laughs> gents. I think we've gone long today. It's been a pleasure talking to you about these Champions League games. Any more for any more before we let the people carry on with the rest of their lives? None for me. Nothing else for me. I'm tired of talking to you, too. I'm not uh, planning to talk to you all at any time in the next 24 hours, except for Joe this evening and then both of you. <laughs> <laughs> we love you very much, too, Taylor. Thank you very much, Taylor. Thank you very much, Joseph. You got it. 